Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 20th, 2020. The I Know a Predator When I See One edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider in Washington, D.C. I am joined from, I think, New Haven, Connecticut, once again, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. And from a hotel room in Washington, D.C., where he is recovering from his late-night convention analyzing duties for CBS News, John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. Good morning. Hi, Emily. Hi, yeah. John is mad at me because I just said something mean, which I I'm now apologizing to you on the air, and it was wrong. I apologize to you and Jocelyn on the air. One of the things I first of all, I wasn't really mean. It was just it was slightly overshot the mark. But the thing that what David once said, like I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, whatever, is that the key in making apologies is to make them abject. And he's you know, really good at it. He's really good at it. And you know who's bad at it? Everyone else on the planet. <laughs> Uh, that's nice of you to say. Thank you. On t- today's GabFest, the Democratic convention, which was planned for Milwaukee, but actually is everywhere, is turning out to be way more interesting and better, I think, than at least I expected. And we will talk about some really remarkable moments and speeches from this week and about what the Republicans may do in response next week. Then the alarming fight over the Postal Service and the president's efforts to skew voting and discredit mail-in voting and where we stand with that. And then a Senate committee led by Republicans finds extraordinary Russian meddling and Trump cooperation with it in the 2016 election. Will any of that matter? Will those revelations reveal or revel or cause any change at all? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. There have been some real moments in this Democratic convention. There was Kamala Harris giving her quite actually pretty banal convention speech, but I know what a predator looks like. That was a very good line. There was Bernie Sanders, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, Trump golfs, Michelle Obama. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. Talking about Donald Trump, Barack Obama's real scorcher of a speech on Wednesday night. We're taping on Thursday morning before Joe Biden has spoken. So we don't know what he's going to say yet. But for me, the roll call on Tuesday night was one of the most magnificent things I have ever seen in politics. It took a tradition that is horrid and dreary and unwatchable and turned it into an, a celebration of America. Videos from 57 states, territories, districts, Democratic officials and everyday citizens put in their votes for Biden and Sanders and celebrated the country. We had Delegates uh, telling stories of history at the Edmund Pettus Bridge and in Tulsa. We had a tribe member at the Sandia Pueblo talking about honoring sovereign nations. We had a super agro union activist fight clubbing in Ohio underneath a giant smokestack. 
there was a college student commemorating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment in the hotel where that was first announced. And they had the amazing calamari moment from Rhode Island. It was so inspiring. So I just apologize for starting off with such a long peroration about that. But I was super moved by that. It moved me to tears. So I'm just going to start with that. Did either of you have any thoughts about that moment? Was it as moving for you as it was for me? Then we can get to everything else that's happening. I loved it. It's totally been my highlight so far. I think one of the reasons it's hitting home so much is that we are stuck at home. And so to go all over the country feels like this special delight right now. I had I, I had missed it in the moment because of the swirl of of uh, being on set and getting ready and all that. Um, and uh, so I watched it later at late at night when I got back to my hotel and uh, it was, yeah, it was so powerful exactly for why you say, Emily, it was like the, taking this travel tour through your television, which used the power of the medium in a new way. I think there were, I felt like there were, we can talk about this later, a couple of, couple of ways in which this constrained convention actually worked better uh, in its new format. And I think the roll call thing is so such a stupid vestige of when it actually mattered, when they're like when the nominee was at stake at these conventions. And so to take that vestigial thing and animate it afresh uh, was um, just great, great theater, but also, you know, like this tiny little glimmer that maybe we can do that with some other things um, if, if, uh, if we get creative. Also, America is so hokey, and I just love how hokey and corny America is. Emily, let's turn to some of the speeches. Let's start with Kamala Harris, who will be the running mate of Joe Biden and was nominated as vice president, who gave, in some sense, the most conventional speech in the most conventional place, uh, except an empty conventional place. And I I thought it was a the only real misstep by the Democrats so far was that speech, both in its blahness and in its staging. So I think that Kamala was introducing herself to the country, and there was a lot about her biography and kind of her place and all the shoulders she was standing on to get to this place. And I loved her enthusiasm in those parts of the speech. She had a, like, bubbliness that I've been watching speeches by her for a long time since I profiled her when she was running for Senate. And she's just become much more comfortable. And you can see the kind of fun she's having. Then I thought the speech started to circle a little bit. And I wasn't quite sure what it was doing, where it was going. It echoed some of the same themes that Barack Obama had just hit, and he had hit them so powerfully. I mean, look, following Barack Obama, following that speech, like, that was a little thankless. I'm not, like, I felt like she kind of got disadvantaged by that sequence there. Because I was still thinking about and absorbing, like, what Obama had said. Um... But I don't know. I mean, uh, John, what, how, what was your takeaway? I thought the the bigger thing she was going to do, which um, which would have been interesting. I mean, she tried to do it, and maybe some people got this, and and I'm um, uh, putting too fine a screen on it. But in, earlier in the evening, in the program, there was a, a segment on immigration in which they quoted or had sound from President Obama talking about immigration and the way in which that's not just a part of the American story; it is central and crucial to the American story. And if the argument here is that the president lacks the personal characteristics to be in touch with the values that underlie the country, that immigration is maybe exhibit A. And so Kamala Harris's personal story of the child being the children of, uh, of immigrants, the child, sorry, of, of immigrants, um, 
allowed her a way to use her personal story to reiterate that idea that immigration isn't just one of the nice things about America. It is a necessary refreshing uh, of the American dream and keeps America vital. And if the argument for the candidacy is that these two are going to revitalize America along the lines of its traditional values, then her personal story is, you know, water on those seeds. Um, And I thought that that was going to be the real like emotional energy mm. behind her speech. And I didn't I didn't quite get that from the speech itself. But as you quite rightly said, Emily, it was it was having to take place while, um, you know, the chandelier was still um, fibrillating from President Obama's speech. So one more thing relating to Kamala. Last week, we had Josie Duffy Rice, our excellent guest on the show. And Josie is a close friend of Mina Harris, um, Kamala's niece. And so we just wanted to disclose that to GapFest listeners. John, the speech that that I think has been most uh, talked about already, um, and Biden, as I said, hasn't spoken, is President Obama's speech, which was a real scorcher. I mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant speech. It reminded you what a fantastic orator he is, both on a grand scale and on this intimate talking directly to us kind of scale. But it it was a very dark speech. I saw somebody... Maybe it was Jonathan Chait on Twitter saying that was the first time they'd ever seen fear from Barack Obama. What was to you, what struck you about that speech? Hmm. That's a really interesting uh, assessment. I think I wonder if that's, there was definitely, I don't know if it was, if it was fear, but it was, remember they used to call him Spock, President Spock, right? Because he was just so emotionless and people talked about how he lacked that in his presidency. Um, and and when he started talking about John Lewis, when he was imploring people to get out to vote and how if basically if John Lewis could do it, you can do it too. Um, there was something in his countenance that looked new and urgent beyond the, the range that he normally operates in when he gives an urgent speech. Um, but I mean, he was basically saying that his successor endangers the survival of democracy. Um, and went back to the place where the Constitution was written to make sure nobody missed his point. Um, it was as it was as it w- I mean, he could not have raised the rhetorical and the historical stakes any higher than he did um, in making his basically it was a get out the vote pitch to um, um, to Democrats. But what struck me in, and, and at the time having to talk about this on television, I couldn't pull all these historical threads in. But basically what you had there was America's first black president defending the principles of a document written by slave owners by citing the cause of Congressman Lewis, who believed enough in that document that he got his skull crushed in marching for the right to be free of legitimacy challenges, right? To, to his Lewis's right to vote. And because of Lewis's success, it meant one day a black president could be elected, and then that black president could face legitimacy challenges from the nation's greatest birther, who would succeed that president, and who he was then in Philadelphia saying needed to defend that document uh, or from that president. I mean, the circularity of what was going on, and the echoes of America, and the and the returning basically to these themes across our entire history was was overwhelming when he was speaking. Emily. The theme about Joe Biden for these first three days, Joe Biden has has appeared as sort of this uh, embodiment of decency, essentially, that 
that there has been, he's actually been a quite minor presence. And insofar as he has been a presence, he's been a, a little bit kind of at a remove almost. But it's... Puckish. He shows up for a second. Like Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream? Yeah, there's something to me that feels like he's like tiptoeing in. Lord, especially what when he showed up at the end of Jill Mortal Biden's speech, speech yeah. on whatever that was, Tuesday night. Which I thought was all about decency. Anyway, continue. Do you think that this decency... Is this the right theme for them to hit with him? I think it's a pretty good theme. Yeah. I felt I feel like it's very mainstream and that there are other parts of this convention that feel much more like they're for the committed, already converted liberals. Um, and obviously Biden is supposed to be the big tent Democrat who reaches out to some of the disaffected former Democrats or possible Democrats out there, um, you know, a quarter of the party, white men who didn't go to college, how much of this convention has resonated for them. Um, I think the parts about the Bidens, like they feel that they could be for everybody, um, but certainly for those people too. It's very down to earth. I love, <laughs> this struck me, I think, because I'm from Philadelphia, but like Jill Biden talks like she's from the suburbs of Philadelphia and Delaware. Like that's, the, I grew up with people with that accent and she has not lost it. And it's interesting to see. And um, so anyway, that. Why don't you have that? I think because I sort of have deliberately tried to shed it because like regional accents are a little parochial and you're supposed your, to like overcome Do your them, sisters right? or parents have it? No, not really. Well, my parents didn't grow up in Philadelphia. When my when we were growing up, a couple of one at least of my sisters always said "water" instead of "water," and I remember like that we tried to break her of that habit. <laughs> <laughs> Perrier, Perrier. Yeah. Uh, John, going to this big TED question. One of the things that I think has been so uh, striking. Maybe it's not that striking. Maybe this happens all the time. Ton of Republicans: Powell, Hagel, Kasich. <laughs> Both the, the Whitman, yeah. Cindy McCain, uh, uh, Susan Molinari. I feel like a lot more of them than there have been ultra progressives have been speaking up. Yeah, I guess it, it, um, it shows what their pitch is trying to be and who they think their audience is in terms of needing to convince. And it feels like to me uh, that the, what they're trying to show is, you know, Joe Biden, decent guy, liked by everybody from... Bernie Sanders to John Kasich, Colin Powell. He's kind of the Goldilocks uh, candidate. You know, he's kind of just about right for everybody. Um, and I think the to the question about progressives, they're more interested in sending this message for this four-day campaign to independent kind of voters or voters who have left the Republican Party and are really alarmed by President Trump, but really can't quite get all the way there to Joe Biden. And I think the the message is essentially, if you think you've been on a chaotic a tilt-a-whirl uh, amusement park ride, he's going to help you get off. And it's not going to be it's not going to be bad. The country's not going to go descend into socialism. There's not going to be rioting in the streets. He's not a radical. He's liked across the board. He's a safe, normal, steady place to go if you're feeling uh, queasy in the stomach after three and a half years of, of chaos. That feels like the constant message here. I think progressives 
Um, the assumption is that between Bernie Sanders and both what he said and what he's doing, and also I think Kamala Harris, even though progressives may not have liked her, the pick and the enthusiasm that's coming with and that's been shown in response to her candidacy and in its historic nature, I think they assume that'll do some of their work for them. But for these four days, it's to make Biden a comfortable person for that group of voters, a lot of whom live in the Midwest and Florida and other swing states, who could tip if they add to the existing Democratic coalition. I mean, one, one thing that I think that there's a useful part in some ways of this convention not being in person, because I think one of the things that it, it doesn't allow the hall to kind of be indifferent to these Republicans, that there's, you get none of that, that. There's a thing that happens when when you have a crowd of excited Democrats is they was super enthusiastic about the people they're enthusiastic about and kind of eh, about the people they're eh about. And so when you have a Kasich and a Hegel and all of these, these Powell, like they would have gotten cheers in a convention hall, but outside with no convention hall and no worry about it, you don't have to worry that their cheers are coming in a little bit less. The enthusiasm is a little bit lower than it is. It, they, they appear on equal footing to Sanders. And I think that actually helps even moderate more. Emily, you were going to say something. Yeah, that's a really good point I hadn't thought of. I was going to say, and I'm sure this is not an original thought, that this feels to me like the first national political televised mourning of coronavirus. And I have been very moved by that. So I thought Christian Urquiza, whose father died from COVID, um, who spoke on the first night, like, I will not forget that moment. And there is a way... His only pre-existing condition was believing in Donald Trump. Right. That was her line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there is a way in which Biden's history, because of the death of his first wife and his baby daughter, and because of the later death of his son, Beau Biden, like, he is a figure of grief. And he has used mourning and grief as a way of connecting with people and is willing to kind of share that part of himself. It's a pretty good match for the national moment. Well, and, and I'll just, uh, because I spent so much time on the book working about thinking about empathy and what that word means and why it's important. And the reason I'm, I'm jumping on Emily's point is because Emily's exactly right in the argument. And it's not even, you don't have to make an argument. You just see it in Joe Biden's bones. And this is one of the ways in which if, if it's possible to convey this to voters, it'll be much more powerful than anything Joe Biden himself can say, because you can't, it's anyway, is that, you know, empathy means basically meaningfully taking into account the experience of other people. And as a president, you have to do that for the whole country. You can't just do it for your political base. And one of the weaknesses that we, we've we talked about before with President Trump is he cannot meaningfully take into account the suffering of 170,000 families who are, who've been affected by the death of their loved ones as a part of COVID-19. It's why you keep hearing that expression from President Trump. It is what it is. Secondly, he has not meaningfully heard the cries of protesters in the streets, even for the purposes of, of not listening to them, but he can't even articulate what they're there for. Um, and in fact, the moment when he went to Lafayette Square, he literally sweeps aside their, their concerns um, and rebukes them. Lack of empathy is completely inconsistent with something that matters in the job. It's not just some like abstract notion. It has literally led to policies uh, that the president, at least according to polls, is, is on the wrong end of. And so they've made the case for which he has a fundamental characterological flaw, and it just happens to be the one that Joe Biden has in the exact opposite 
quality. I mean, in other words, he has that empathy in abundance, not because he's some politician who's been told to have empathy, but because, as you were saying, Emily, he has suffered drop by drop the pain of losing people in his family and connects so quickly to other people, not just those who've lost people in their family, but who have suffered and who go through things and carrying that to the office isn't just a nice thing. It's a necessary precondition for the office of the presidency. So, John, I want to now turn to this convention as as tactics and to what the Republicans are going to do next week. I don't know if you've been doing any reporting on this, but but there's certainly been people writing about it. Uh, the Republicans ha- were not planning this uh, virtual convention for nearly as long as the Democrats have. So there may they they may not have as much time to pull stuff together, but they've been able to watch what the Democrats are doing. I'm sure they're working frantically to steal the best bits and and avoid the worst bits. What is your sense about what the Trump convention will look like compared to this? And I would uh, just one note, which is that some of the guests, it's like a real grievance fest. There are a bunch of people who are the, the McCloskeys, that St. Louis couple that pointed guns at the people walking through their neighborhood, and Nicholas Sandman, the uh, high school student who ended up suing the Washington Post and CNN over how they characterized an encounter he had with a Native American protester on the National Mall are scheduled to speak. That doesn't mean they'll be the well, central figures, but he they're, won they're that coming law- up. He won. He won that lawsuit. No, he settled. The lawsuit. He got, they, they he settled. settled. He settled. They settled, but they settled because they, they, the, they were in the wrong position. But... Um, and I think he'll be used not just for his story, but also as a as a way to set up um, and bait uh, and bait the press. I think that there are two big things that will happen. One is the president will be able to go into his convention. And this is amazing, by the way. He wasn't a he hasn't been a Republican all his life. When he ran in 2016, he flirted with leaving or at least publicly said he would leave the Republican Party in the middle of campaigning for its nomination. He will now go to the convention having completely remade the Republican Party in his image. It's like a a real estate development. He is completely in charge of that party. Any opposition has mostly been drawn out of the party. Anybody who who says an astringent word has to bubble wrap it in in a bouquet of compliments uh, because of the power he has within that party. That's kind of an amazing political achievement. He is in part able to do that because he has delivered for Republicans on defense spending, resisting any expansion of abortion rights, full-throated support for the Second Amendment, cutting taxes, cutting regulations, and uh, of course on judges has given Republicans uh, what they want. So in terms of delivering for your party, on a substantive level, he's done a fantastic job. He's also obviously, as Newt Gingrich says, he may or may not be a conservative, but he's the best anti-liberal I know, which gets you to your point, David, which is he has been a constantly engaged in owning the libs and baiting the press. And um, mostly both of those groups have taken the bait. And that delights his his supporters. The presidency is, by the way, not a job about delighting your supporters, but nevertheless, that's what we're stuck with. And so I think the convention will be highly tuned to grievance because what he's trying to do is shift the turf. Part of what the Biden convention has been about is saying this election is all about the management of COVID-19. It's a referendum on the president's failure to do so. And Joe Biden will be able to handle the COVID-19 questions coming forward. What Trump wants to do is reshift the debate. He wants this to be about an America that will be in desolation if the Democrats take control. And the question is whether reality keeps bringing the turf back to reality or whether President Trump is successful in saying, no, this is the turf on which the presidency should be debated over the next three months. He's definitely going to try and set what the conditions of the debate are for the rest of the campaign in in his convention. 
I wish I had a dollar for every time one of the Democrats has talked about the importance of hard work in this convention. Like, they are so earnest. They are rolling up their sleeves. And I just feel like that is not the theme we are going to hear from the Republicans. Like, you can't own the libs and appeal to your base by talking about hard work, especially if you haven't done it. Do, Emily, do you think it matters a great deal that Trump gets to go second? And who decides who gets to go second? I have no idea. I feel completely unequipped to answer that question. Perhaps John has some thoughts. I think the incumbent always goes second. I may be making that up, but I think that's true. I, I have no idea what, whether it matters. I think that basically conventions blow through the digestive tract pretty quickly. So I don't know. Um, and we'll see in this tra- crazy world whether they have a different um, effect. So so I guess we'll have, just have to figure it out after the campaign's over and we, we walk the cat back to what mattered. One final point before we leave this, just I think it's implicit in everything we said talking about the Democratic uh, presentation. What has been kind of amazing and inspiring is is how diverse this convention is. It is diverse geographically. Of course, it's diverse in age. There are young and old participating. It is racially diverse. The number of women who have had prominent speaking roles is much, much higher than I'm sure it will be on the on the Republican side. That's really inspiring. It makes you, reminds you what a kind of tapestry, what a, what a wonderful quilt this country is. So huzzah to that. Although, you know, one of the many, many different things is whether for some portion of this country, that's destabilizing. Yes. That's a destabilizing notion. Yes, it is. It is. It is. It definitely is. That is a, that is one of the fracture points of this country and it's depressing. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, on other Slate podcasts with your membership, which is just $35 a year for your first year. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Today, we're going to uh, talk about a question that one of you posed to us, which is what was our first concert and what does it reveal about us, our first concert that we ever saw as a kid? So uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. I, I, I found some videotape that was relevant to mine. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. 
We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. On Tuesday, Postmaster General DeJoy announced that he is rolling back all the operational changes that have so alarmed people about the possibility of a mail-in voting disaster in November. DeJoy had moved to curtail overtime to take away mail processing machines, various other restrictions, and he had put, he's put those on hold, uh, and the post office will continue status quo ante till the election, or at least... That's what he says. There are several ways of looking at this. One is uh, public outrage has worked. A possible threat was stopped. Another is trust in the post office has been degraded, which is going to discourage mail-in voting and weaken it in the long run. And also uh, will probably, I mean, will help somebody in the election. Uh, Another way is that Trump has succeeded in distracting and agitating the public and his overall policy of undermining trust in the election is working. So, Emily, how important is this this sort of specific post office controversy in the entire broad sweep of concern about the integrity of the election? Like, what where does it rank compared to all these other concerns about the integrity of the election and the way that the president is explicitly uh, trying to cancel trust in it? I think it ranks high because there is going to be more pressure on vote by mail this year. Uh, And also, look, like, the post office just matters. I mean, people waiting days and weeks for medicine and financial deliveries and other things they need is, like, really bad. (laughs) It's just bad for the country. And, like, this is... The the post office is, like, a 90% approval rating in America. People depend on it. So just for its own sake, separate from the election, this is a problem. I feel like this is... The political play here seems to me like I just don't see the the advantage for Trump in the end. I mean, there's enough time, first of all, for people to regroup and figure out other ways to vote, right? So you heard Michelle Obama at the convention say, vote, vote in person if you can. There's now much more attention to setting up secure drop-off boxes in states for ballots. If they were really going to use the post office to screw up the election by not delivering ballots, they should have waited until the end of October to make all these changes, because now Trump's appointee is Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. He's promised to cancel some of the changes he made. Now, there are some things like they took out these big sorting machines in a number of states across the country, and I, as he has apparently not said that those are coming back. But it seems like some of the main changes he is promising to reverse, which have to do with paying overtime to postal workers and making sure that they deliver all the mail that's that's comes in, as opposed to just like leaving some of it behind, which is really antithetical to how they operate. So I just sort of feel like the whole thing is kind of a mess. What I don't like is the 
gaslighting I've heard from some Republicans like Mitch McConnell, which is like, oh, nothing to see here. Don't worry. It's all going to be fine. Well, actually, like, no. I mean, even the less political version of this chaos, which is in this letter that was apparently planned before DeJoy took over, which came from a career official and was sent to 46 states saying like, hey, we're worried about your absentee ballot deadlines. We're not sure we're going to be able to turn everything around fast enough. Like, that is itself a problem. And so the notion that you can just wave your hands at this and dismiss it all seems like really misguided. Like it's good that we're focusing on this and trying to uh, address it as best as, as, as the country can. If there's a strategy behind it, it's the same one the president employed in 2016, which is to basically, you know, he claimed several times in August, well, basically August through till the end of the election, that the only way he was going to lose is if there was um, uh, voter fraud. I mean, he did it repeatedly, um, which I had, I'd forgotten how much he did it until I went back and um, I went back and looked. It turns out that I had went round and round and round with the chairman of the Republican Party at the time, Reince Priebus, on, on Face the Nation about this. And I went back and looked at that transcript from October of 2016. It's amazing. I encourage everybody to go. I tweeted it. Um, and in it, I quote Nikki Haley, who says this election is not rigged and it's irresponsible to say that it is. Just to give you some sense of how um, things have changed. Uh, and because now... Th- Nobody is really, um, uh, I mean, there's much more of obviously rallying around the president. They may not like what he's talking about with the post office because a lot of people who represent rural areas know how important the post office it is. But it's a reminder that on a lot of the things where he has a stewardship duty, he just doesn't engage with that stewardship duty, uh, stewardship duty as president, um, which is one of the things that President Obama was saying. He doesn't he not only doesn't engage in stewardship of of institutions that he's been handled care handed care over, but he does the exact opposite. He sows distrust and mayhem in those institutions over which he has stewardship. Um, I think in the end, the question is. And I don't, you know, I, I've mentioned this a million times on the show, and I wonder if there is anybody studying this, but there is this idea in political science that people will are motivated more to vote when their vote is in is being threatened than, than just the regular old times. And clearly the message from Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, and Kamala Harris during the convention about coming up with a vote plan. And I mean, this is like disaster preparedness. This is like having, a you know, some, uh, some canned beans in the root cellar for the coming uh, tornado. And, and I wonder if, and that won't go because Michelle Obama's speech, which will get passed around and Barack Obama's speech, which will get passed around, will keep rewatering those fears, regardless of what DeJoy does or anybody else does about the, the actual post office. And I think one other thing is that there's going to be a, re, a, a relentless campaign between now and the end of the um, and the actual election day of, of informing people in the basically battleground states about, you know, if you have an absentee ballot, you don't have to put it back in the mail. You can go drop it off. And just informing people about what the rules are. And so to the extent that Democrats have always a little bit harder time motivating their voters than Republicans, you could imagine this um, working for uh, Democrats. You know, you could also imagine it sowing so much chaos that it ends up working for the president. But again, I think it's probably one of those things we don't know till we actually see the votes come in. It also puts a lot of attention on voting early, which is probably not good for Donald Trump. The the I think it's very different, John. I, I agree that Trump is hitting the same themes as 2016, but as you were getting to, 
it's very different to do this with the power of the incumbency and with the full control of a Republican Party. I mean, his his ability to cast doubt on the outcome of the election, to to sow chaos and to to create a situation where it's unclear whether we're going to have a peaceful transition of power is profound in a way that it, in 2016 it wasn't. If there had, if Hillary Clinton had won that election, as everyone expected her to win that election, even if Trump had been yelling fraud, the Republican Party would have moved on beyond Trump very quickly, and Hillary Clinton would have been president, and that would have been that. It is not at all clear if there is a ambiguous result or a result in which there is Trump could make some possible claim of a, a victory that he will allow that to happen. And it's also not clear whether Republican officials are, if there is, again, if there's ambiguity, whether Republican officials will side with a Biden presidency, even if that that is the what the norm would argue that they should side with. I, could, I couldn't agree. So it's very worrisome. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree yeah. more. I was just pointing out that this is his instinct. This is his natural instinct. And, and yes. I was clumsily trying to say what's different now is that right. you had Nikki Haley back then. You have nobody yeah. basically saying, saying yes. that now. Right. You have a, a totally a, a Republican Party, which has been supine and abject and has, has so sold itself to him and people who have in large part abandoned their principles about what what fairness and and what a free election would be. And, and so so it's it's super alarming. I want to say actually make a point about I do not. It is not clear to me that, that Louis DeJoy is a bad actor here. It is not clear to me that, in fact, what Louis DeJoy was trying to do was corrupt the election. I think he he is a business person. He's a Republican. He's a huge Trump donor. I'm not pretending any of that isn't true. Of course he is. And I think probably what he wants to do to the post office will could radically disrupt its service and change and change how it works and slow mail delivery and and all of those things. But it is not. It, it's it's certainly not at all clear that he was doing that because he was intending to disrupt the election. I think he was doing that because that is what he in principle wants to do. And there may have been a side effect that the president was going to enjoy of it disrupting mail-in balloting. But, uh, but I don't think that DeJoy, that was not the, it does, there's no evidence that I've seen that that is what DeJoy actually intended. Um, I mean, if there's so, a benign explanation, it's that he thinks the post office should operate more like a business and the post office is losing money, mostly because yes. it's saddled with a 75-year obligation for its employees' pension plans, which is not true for any other federal agency. But if you come in as like a cost-cutter businessman, then maybe that's your agenda. But it sort of doesn't matter. Like the chances we're going to find the smoking gun evidence that is the, you know, transcript of the phone call with Donald Trump, like, please destroy the post office for me so nobody can vote. I'd say that's low. But if it's having an effect of making the election harder to pull off, then these changes at a very sensitive moment are a bad idea. That's a great point, Emily. I must also say that I'm not nearly as worried about the post office stuff as I am about perhaps Russian actual hacking of voting machines. As we're taping today, we see, you know, Putin probably just poisoned his leading rival. Uh, you know, we have a completely a, a Russian a Russian government that is, is very happy to interfere in the world. And, and as Franklin Four reported in The Atlantic earlier this year, the election security of electronic voting is not great. And it may be the case that Russians are waiting to camper without an election day or there's the other scenario of the detroit power grid being taken out on election day and people can people even vote in detroit on election day which would be a hugely disruptive so i think there are there are a lot of i mean i don't want to call them black swans because black swans implies that they can't occur whereas we see that all this stuff is 
is occurring all the time now. I think there are a lot of other disruptions to the election that worry me more than the Postal Service one. So. Oh, good. Well, we'll worry about all of those, too. The Postal Service one is present in the moment. I feel like that we're going to have, we can just, you know, take turns. Each will have its moment or it won't happen at all. It's hard to say. How do you think, and whichever one of you wants to answer this, how, should, how do you think people should act to ensure that their vote is counted? What, what should people do to protect their own vote now and in the next 75 days? Vote early. And to help others. Vote early. I think 41 states, something like that, have some early voting option. I think if you are healthy and not that worried about coronavirus, not high risk, you can think about voting in person. If you want to vote by mail and you want to tee all of that up now and confirm your voter registration and make sure it's up to date, which is important, you can go to a website, www.vote-absentee.com, and you can sign up, I think now, to get a mail ballot. And there's also an organization called PowerThePolls.org, which is um, collecting people who want to be poll workers. That is going to be a real issue on Election Day because a lot of the traditional poll workers are retirees. Some of them are understandably nervous about performing that job because they're a higher risk for COVID. And so this is like a perfect thing for young people to do who want to help with our democracy. Very nonpartisan. PowerThePolls.org. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence issued its fifth and final volume of its report on Russia's interference in the 2016 election. It is a bipartisan report of a committee that is chaired by a Republican and has a Republican majority. It is absolutely damning, as previous volumes have been. It details the astonishing and extensive connections between Russia and Russian intelligence and the Trump campaign. It is reveals how happily, gleefully, the campaign took advantage of Russia's help, how much they lied about it, and how they have completely gotten away with it. There are some really stunning details that were elaborated, things that we've sort of known a little bit but knew more. Paul Manafort, the chair of the Trump campaign, his business partner with whom he had daily encrypted conversations, conversations that were then destroyed, was a Russian intelligence officer. Literally, the person who Manafort is working most closely with is a agent of Vladimir Putin. Roger Stone was coordinating directly with WikiLeaks. Roger Stone uh, also talked to the president about the WikiLeaks um, document dumps that the Republicans or that Trump wanted to happen. And Trump lied about that, that Trump said he never talked to him, but he did. Uh, That the timing of the release of WikiLeaks documents was absolutely coordinated through the Trump campaign and was designed to distract from problems that Trump was having to maximize damage to Democrats. A whole bunch of other things. It's very depressing. It's an explicit, totally successful campaign on Vladimir Putin's part to subvert the election, to influence a candidate, to sow division in the country, utterly welcomed by the Republican nominee for President Donald Trump. And now it is of no consequence. So, Emily, how does, let's start with the substance of this. How does this extend or not what we learned from impeachment and from the Mueller report? There's more details about these extensive contacts between the Trump campaign and Russians. And I feel like especially the what you just outlined, um, first of all, it makes Roger Stone seem like an obvious liar. I mean, that's not like a big surprise, but to have confirmation of that is interesting. 
You know, my main feeling about this whole saga is that if we had known everything at key moments when the country was focused on this, either, you know, in the initial stage of investigation or when the Mueller report came out, it just would have been more damning for the Trump campaign. And instead, the kind of drip drip of information makes it really hard to pay attention. I mean, I'm having trouble like yanking my brain back into what exactly collusion was supposed to have meant. And I think what we're left with is this it was clear that the Russians were very eager to provide help to Trump to win the election, that, that the Trump campaign was really interested in talking about it. And we're never going to know what Manafort was saying to this Russian agent he was in such close touch with or what his links were to Ukrainian oligarch Deripaska, right? Like, who's also part of this mix. And that's, like, that matters also because we know that the Russians are trying to interfere this time as well. And so maybe that's really the main thing to focus on is understanding that this is a continuing and serious threat. And when our intelligence agencies warn about it, they know what they're talking about. What there's, what there's no... Um evidence of really is anybody saying yikes we shouldn't be doing this like it was they were they were if if there's not collusion which uh i mean i think in retrospect people will perhaps blame whomever is to blame for setting the bar too high you know you don't need to have an email that says hey help us win this election tomorrow at three fifteen. They shouldn't have even taken these meetings. They shouldn't have been collusion curious, which is obviously from this report and so many others. They were de they were very anxious to take this help from the Russians, and the Russians were very anxious to give whatever help they could. And and that alone should be disqualifying. The fact that the president in his interview with George Stephanopoulos still, now that he's president, and again has a stewardship duty to protect the country, said he would want to listen or perhaps entertain intelligence information that came from a foreign country, means that that lesson is not, hasn't been uh, conveyed. One other thing I would just add that was in the report Again, two other things I would add that was in the report. One is obviously the, um, it was also scathing, though I think the, you know, we have to think of an order of priorities here. The indifference of one presidential campaign to the obvious effort by an American adversary to influence the campaign, that indifference is a big, is the big top line and the repeated efforts to cover up for that are also the top line. But a secondary thing is, is something we used to talk about in the old days about the FBI and the FISA court and the either sloppiness or just basically bending the rules to get the result you want in investigations, which is also a part of this in the way in which the FBI was either sloppy or malevolent in investigating some of this, which is a part of the report. It's not on the same part of the partisanship here is that is that a lot of Republicans have elevated that to the top most important thing about the report, which is obviously backwards as a way of um, thinking about priorities. But another thing that's important in here is that after all of this investigation, the hundreds and hundreds of interviews that were done, the Ukraine story was determined by investigators. The idea that Ukraine was trying to interrupt the election was determined once again, many others have determined this as well, but that it was determined to be a Russian disinformation plot. Why is that important? Well, partisanship has caused a lot of this report to be looked at through partisan eyes. That's the one thing that hasn't. That was at the heart of the president's phone call with the president of Ukraine. Like, I mean, it's been thoroughly debunked. It was part of why the president was impeached. Um, and so that shouldn't be lost here in this uh, uh, report either. 
One other point about this is that, you know, we still are waiting for this Justice Department investigation of the investigators that John Durham is running, having been tasked by Attorney General Bill Barr. And so that seems like it is going to be a kind of potential October surprise that will be an effort to discredit the Biden campaign. And so this bipartisan report may matter in that moment in lining those two versions of events up and seeing what has real credibility. So I applaud Richard Burr and Mark Warner, the two senators who led this, for having managed to lead a really good, create a really good, solid report and in a, and created a bipartisan report and gotten Republicans to sign on to it too, despite the amazing damning material. I would just note, we had an impeachment trial this year of the president and the senators who signed this report and knew the extent to which the Trump campaign was colluding or whatever word verb you want to use, the Trump campaign was cooperating with an enemy interfering in our election. Uh, all voted to to not convict the president. You know, it's so it's it is demoralizing that they that they are willing to look at the truth, just not look at the truth when it comes to holding the president to account. And we I didn't want, have these facts then. Like, did they? Well, really they but they they kind of they had the facts. They well, knew they it. did, but yeah. also like yeah. it would have mattered at that moment if we would have known this. As a political matter, I my own view on this is that if you the question of whether Biden or his surrogates should even talk about this. And my own view is they should not. They should not even, it should not even be an issue at all. You, they need to keep the pandemic, the economic collapse, Trump's irregularity and incompetence front and center. Even though it is contains tons of new information, I think it will seem to people who are casual followers, this is, oh, we've already litigated this. We already had the impeachment. What do you mean? We already went through this once, twice, five times already. And to make this any in any sense the focus of the campaign, I think would be a huge mistake when there's so much else to talk about. I wouldn't I literally would not even mention it, talk about it, do anything with it if I were if I were a Biden campaign advisor. And, Is that Yeah, and they've kind of I am not a Biden campaign advisor. But they kind though. of ha they haven't, right? I mean, I haven't heard it come up that much in the first three days of the uh of the convention. I right. mean, even Hillary Clinton, who could have had every reason to uh, I don't even know if she mentioned, or she may have done it obliquely, but I think they've stayed kind of remarkably away from it. If I were Vladimir Putin, uh, which I'm also not, if I were Vladimir Putin, I would <laughs> be just be like gleeful at the thought of all the ways that I could be interfering with the the American election right now. Who knows what they've come up with? I mean, it's probably not what they were doing in 2016, but it's probably something just as malevolent and possibly as dangerous. So, goodness gracious. One thing that struck me is Senator Marco Rubio, who's now ranking chair of that committee that issued the report. During the campaign, he uh, took a very contrary position to Republicans when WikiLeaks started to leak the Clinton emails. He said, we should not be making use of this. This should not be something anybody talks about in the campaign because it allows the Russians an, an, uh, an inroad to meddle in our campaigns. And he said, Republicans don't like hearing me say that, but it's going to be turned against us someday as well. Um, which is an amazing thing to say in the middle of a campaign about something your party, and particularly your nominee, is making so much use of. He has obviously lost that um, passion with respect to the way he framed this report. So that's an interesting journey that he has gone on since uh, Donald Trump is now the president. Second thing I would note is that um, uh, breaking news, Steve Bannon 
has been indicted uh, by the uh, acting United States Attorney of the Southern District of New York for participating in a scheme to defraud um, hundreds of thousands of donors in something called the Build, We Build the Wall online fundraising campaign, which apparently raised $25 million, uh, but was a big, um, according to the uh, acting United States Attorney of the Southern District of New York, uh, a big fraud scheme. Um, so Wait, this is a real piece of news that you just read us. It is not a joke from another world. Steve Bannon was just indicted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. He's not even being indicted. He's not even being indicted. We were. He's not even being indicted for the reasons that he. We were going to talk about him being indicted. That was a whole other separate subject for which he should have been indicted for lying to Congress. So he's being indicted for Emily something else. Basilon, my stars and garters. You don't think that I am bringing in the fresh, hot news uh, from the outside world? You think it's I'm making this up? It's just a little on no, the nose, John Dickerson. Like, come on. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. Well, as you know, I constantly have my nose. This, this season, and so you, we needed to bring it in. <laughs> I, my nose is in the nooks and crannies of the developing uh, developments, grief. and I'm just bringing them to you, man. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you your nose is in a cocktail, not in developments, and you are sniffing the bouquet of a fine, a fine scotch, a fine wine, a fine margarita. Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about after you get your nose out of your drink oh man i am so worried about how this school year is going to go in remote learning america and there was a story this week in the new york times by claire kane miller who's one of my favorite writers and um it's just the headline one in five families will have any sort of in-person child care this year and only one in seven families are going to have children who are going to have full in-person school. So we just have this huge unfilled gap. All these kids who are going to be home and their parents presumably are going to be taking care of them and also doing their work. I fear for everyone's mental health in this situation, and I really fear about the potential losses for the employment of women in particular. I mean, if history is any guide, it's going to be moms who do more of the childcare and who step out of their professions more than dads and the whole thing just seems like it's going to be so hard and put so much stress and pressure on families you know this is one of the ways emily that when i was talking earlier about reality resetting the turf on which the presidential election should take place um thinking about the colleges which both you and i have spent time reporting on you know i went down to unc and they they were taking it super seriously. They have an infectious disease department down there with veterans who've worked all over the world, worked in Wuhan, worked with even more contagious diseases. They were doing everything that they thought was prudent to make a shot at trying to reopen, not, not going into it blindly and not going into it thinking it was all going to be sunshine and rainbows. Um, and they got slammed by reality. Like it just, you couldn't do it. Same thing happened with Notre Dame in terms of despite all taking all the precautions. And it's a, it's a way in which when, you know, the happy talk that has come from the president and the constant downplaying of the nature of the threat, which has left people vulnerable, when things like what's happening in, the, in colleges keep getting back onto the front pages, it just, it, it reiterates the idea that the federal response has not been adequate because even in an instance where everybody does what's supposed to be right, the virus is still overwhelming those systems. And I wonder how much that will matter in the way people think about and evaluate 
the problems um, that this is causing. Yeah, I can't even talk about the universities right now because I'm petrified. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do hope that college students around the country, if you are listening, you do not want this to be you. Please, like, if you're coming back to your college towns and communities, help us protect them because this really does, in a lot of ways, come down to your behavior. Testing is like a huge piece of this for universities, and um, you need to have entry tests, you need to have a lot of regular testing, and I think we also need to be quarantining the kids coming from high COVID areas also. John Dickerson, I hope you have a jollier chatter than that one because that was a really unjolly chatter from the Well, um, that, you know, she's always paying attention, keeping her eye on the ball. Um, and also one other thing I would just add is that what Emily's talking about are the, the aftershocks of COVID that are going to be the responsibility of the next president or the incumbent president. And they are going to be with us for a long time, unwinding the, the damage that's been done and, the, and some of it in some cases irreparable. And, and having a team in place to handle that, this should be another part of our conversation for the next couple of months. My chatter is, I hope, lighter. It comes from Keith Johnson, who sent me an article that he'd written, which marries two of my favorite things, the self-improvement of life hacking and the idiosyncrasies of the founders. Um, Johnson, who's a historian, wrote a piece entitled The 18th Century Reasons Biden's VP Pick Should Be a Night Owl, which was a bit of a crowbarring, a, a fun piece into current events. But it explores the antique notion of lubrication which was the term used in the past to describe the process of working by candlelight. So uh, that seemed uh, fantastical to me, so I went and looked it up. And it is, in fact, true in the 1500s and 1600s. Lubrication was applied to specifically study at night, as, and, and the written product thereof of that nighttime study by candlelight. Soon, uh, over time, like by the 1700s, it came to mean anything that, of weight that was written during the day or night. But the framers were into this because of Quin, Quintilian, the ancient Roman writer who, who wrote about this notion. And he, he wrote that the advantage of lubrication, when the silence of the night, a shut-up chamber, and one light keep the mind collected, as it were, upon its subject. And so... Um, it turns out that this is the way that they used to talk about working late at night. And this was something they all sought to like make a part of their life. We no longer use this expression, but you find it throughout. James Madison wrote about um, his uh, lubrications in the evening. And John Adams wrote, my lubrications have done no good that I know of. Mankind have found more amusement in shedding blood than in reading. What what is the etymology of the that? etymology? Thank you, David, for asking. The let, the etymology <laughs> of it is that it derives from the Latin verb. <laughs> this is not. This apparently is true. It derives from the Latin verb lucbrare, meaning to work by lamplight. Wow. What and why does it become to mean slip slippery and oily? I don't know. I because suppose of, the lamplight that. Um, Perhaps because it's made of oil, oil from the it's lamp, like whale oil lamp, yeah, or something. the oil that mm. comes from the lamplight. Um, wow. Yeah. So there you go. So when someone says that they are um, sleepy-eyed because of their hours of lubrication, you can um, know exactly what they've been doing. Um, there's so many, so many, so many inappropriate things to say. I have two quick chatters, both bits of culture that I am enjoying immensely right now. First is uh, Shtisel, which is an Israeli TV show about ultra-Orthodox black hat Jews, a family uh, 
a widowed father, his artistic son who hasn't managed to get himself married, and a daughter who has six young children and an unreliable husband and various other family members and friends. It is a beautiful, funny, sad, fascinating show. It has um, it's a it's a window into a culture. Uh, that I don't know. I don't know if it's an accurate window, actually, but it's a it's a it's a persuasive in its portrait of it. Um, and what it's great about it is that it takes a group of people who are because of the uniform that they wear and their sort of 19th century look are not attributed humanity and psychology because of these external markers. They're just sort of put in an other category. And it just makes it shows them how deep it shows us how deep and complicated and human and wonderful they are. It's, it's just a fantastically good uh, series. I really recommend it. Even if you're not Jewish or interested in Judaism, it doesn't, that doesn't really matter. I mean, there's a lot of traditional stuff you'll have to pick up on, but the, the show is gorgeous. And also I want to recommend Maria Konnikova's wonderful newish book, which I can't, John, you must have, have you read it? It's very up your alley. It's called the biggest bluff. And (laughs) I've not only read it. I think I chattered about it. Did you chatter it? Oh, I chattered about the piece that she wrote in, um, I think it was, it was either the, the the Atlantic or that was written about her, but anyway, I've definitely chattered about it. Okay. Well, um, good. That was a good chatter. Anyway, book is great. It's about her, her, year of learning how to become a poker player, going from being a fish to being a wildly successful professional player. It's about mastering control, about learning how to read other people and read yourself, knowing yourself and your habits. It's a very fun and lively and interesting book, which I strongly recommend. And listeners, you too, you've been sending us some great chatters uh, where you're sending us articles that you're reading, books that you love, works of culture, things that you noted, and you send them to us by tweeting them to us at SlateGabFest. And Rich Bravo, you sent us kind of the most bizarre, wonderful cocktail chatter, which is Hieronymus Bosch, but music. And what Rich Bravo points us to is a piece of music on YouTube of a mid sort of uh, I don't know fifteenth in the in the style of the fifteenth century with lute harp and hurdy gurdy, and it's based on um, some music that is in a Bosch painting, a Bosch painting called the Garden of Earthly Delights. They, they, so it's t- they, someone has taken the notes on this from this painting and tr- created a piece of music, and it's quite actually nice and qu- kind of cool. It's a really cool sounding piece of music. But what's fascinating about it is that the notes are written on the butt of a soul being tortured in hell, and you, it's in, it's a tiny little thing in a corner of this painting. You can just see that this musical notation on someone's ass, and now someone has written a piece of music about it and it's it's just it's super weird but i was delighted by it check it out that is our show for today the gap fest is produced by jocelyn frank our researchers bridget dunlap gabriel roth june thomas and alicia montgomery are the brain trust executive producer managing producer editorial director types of slate podcasts for emily Bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz please follow us on twitter at slate gap fest and tweet chatter to us there we will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. I reiterate, we asked, or I asked on Twitter for Slate Plus ideas. Holy cow, there are so many great ideas in there. And they're now list a mile long. 
today we're going to take one who came, which came from Joe McConnell at JM McConnell 53. And Joe McConnell cites as one of their favorite icebreakers. What was your first concert and how old were you? Leads to interesting discussions and embarrassments. Uh, so let's discuss. I have some. I have some. Uh, Emily, you're muted. Oh, shoot. That was for the garbage truck. I want to hear yours. I want to hear both of yours. Uh, all right, I'll go. I'll, 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 I'll go first. All right, so I would say there are, I'm going to get, take three. So as a kid, my parents, so I was taking a various classical stuff by my parents. I don't count that. That was horrible. Can't stand classical music. But as a young kid, like a seven-year-old, my, my parents took me to uh, Arlo Guthrie, Pete Seeger shows. Yeah. But I'm not even going to count that because that was not my, I didn't choose that. But those were great. I love those. The first concert I remember going to was a UB40 show in about probably 1984 when I was 14. I think at Meriwether Post Pavilion. And that was fine. But the first concert I kind of volitionally went to, really, like really went to, uh, that I have strong memories of was I saw the Pogues at the nine, the old nine thirty club with my brother when I was 15 or 16 and my mother, <laughs> my mother was a Pogues fan and it was kind of like weird to be at a club show and the nine thirty, the old nine thirty club was really, really dang. Oh my God. And, yes. and being at night and Shane McGowan was drunk beyond drunk and it was a, it was an amazing show, and I just I was I was trying to figure out what year it was, and I was googling around, and someone has a a eight minute snippet of that show at the nine thirty club. It's just terrible audio, but it was just like as I remembered it. So that was it was it was a wild, awesome show. The Pogues are an Irish folk punk band. What um, was it like to be there with your mom? My mom's a wonderful woman, and I, it wasn't. I mean, I I it probably prevented me from dancing, but uh, but it was. It was it was like really cool to be there with my brother in this dark, tiny little club, stank, and to be really close. We were right up close to the stage, and I guess it was probably really uncool to have my mom there. <laughs> but very sweet in retrospect, uh, I love yeah. it. Yeah, David, there was a Meriwether Post uh, UB40 concert in August of 1985. Would that have been it? Yeah, me. Well, it seems a little. Is that the that's the only one you found? seems a little, that's probably, yeah, maybe that's it. seems a little later, because the rem- people I remember going with, I w- didn't think I was friends with by 85. So, yeah, when I was 15. So, I saw uh, the two, this is not the answer to the original question of the pl- Slate Plus, but I saw two Meriwether Post um, concerts that stick in my head. One, GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.